For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the latest on some of the legal battles being waged on the U.S.-Mexico border. An interview with Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman about enlightenment and joy. And exploring the podcast Bundyville and what it says about the rancher and his family who challenged the U.S. government. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This week, the Human Rights Office of the United Nations denounced the Trump administration's new immigration policy of separating children from their parents after they crossed the U.S. border with Mexico, calling it a serious human rights violation. United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley immediately fired back, accusing the international group of hypocrisy. Haley said that while admonishing the U.S., the U.N., quote, ignores the reprehensible human rights records of several members of its own Human Rights Council. AZPM's border and immigration reporter Nancy Montoya brings us up to date. The divide between the international immigrant rights community and the Trump administration grew deeper and more controversial in early April as Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a new immigration policy. I have put in place a zero-tolerance policy. If you cross the border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. But immigration attorneys say there is nothing simple about that pronouncement. My name is Martin Gauto, and I'm a senior attorney with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Gauto says that never before have families turning themselves in at the border and asking for asylum been separated. And never before has there been a 100 percent immigration prosecution order by the Justice Department. In the immigrant community and as far as advocates, legal advocates, we really feel like we're playing defense. Like we're having to react to a lot of things that the government is doing to try to restrict access to legal protections, restrict access to due process. So for example, with kids, you know, they're being taken away from their parents at the border and the government is creating unaccompanied minors. And this has been in the news a lot recently. Now to add to the confusion, say immigration attorneys, is the seemingly little distinction the Trump administration makes between a desperate family fleeing gang and cartel violence in Central America and the human smugglers who prey on those families. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. But immigration experts say there is no U.S. immigration law that requires children be separated from their parents unless those children are in imminent danger. Immigration attorney Laura St. John is the legal director for the Florence Project here in southern Arizona. The nonprofit represents immigrants fighting deportation. What's happening right now is really unprecedented. What we've seen here in Arizona since January, over 200 cases of parents being separated from their children. And some of these children are extremely young, as you mentioned. Um, We've actually seen children who are two years old regularly. And uh, just last week, we saw a 53-week-old infant in court without a parent. While at the border recently, Kristen Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, said the Trump administration is not backing down. And let me be clear, everywhere in communities across this country, if you commit a crime, the police will take you to jail. It should be the same on the border. 
As such, this administration is no longer exempting classes of individuals from the consequences of their crimes. This is unprecedented. This is the worst thing I've seen in 25 plus years of doing the civil rights work. That's Lee Gellinert, an immigration attorney and the deputy director of the Immigrants' Rights Project with the American Civil Liberties Union. He says the Trump administration must be stopped from separating families. I mean, I am talking to these mothers and they are describing their kids screaming, mommy, mommy, don't let them take me away, five years old, six years old, and they're just being ripped away. Now, in March of this year, Gellner and a legal team from the ACLU filed a class action lawsuit against the Trump administration for separating immigrant parents from their children while the families sought asylum. ACLU immigration attorneys were able to identify 429 cases of parents being separated from their children at the border. Gelnart says every day the Civil Rights Agency is adding more cases to the class action lawsuit. Particularly cruel, he told Chris Hayes of MSNBC, is that the children are not being held nearby and that parents are in agony. They don't see them. They get to speak to them once in a while. But of course, if you're talking about an 18-month-old, two years old, they can't even speak on the phone. I really feel like these policy debates are becoming so abstract. If the policymakers could sit in those ICE offices down there at the border for a day and watch these little kids begging not to be taken away. Secretary of Homeland Security Kristen Nielsen is one of those policymakers, and she has been to the Arizona border most recently two weeks ago. We don't know if she sat in with ICE agents in the type of situation the ACLU deputy director just described. The media was kept away and only allowed photo ops of Secretary Nielsen as she and Congresswoman Martha McSally flanked by Tucson sector Border Patrol officials as they took a few steps towards the border fence pointed a few times and then got back into their vehicles. The media was then loaded into a bus for a 10-minute news conference where the Secretary of Homeland Security said this. It appears our critics want a two-tier legal system. They think illegal aliens should get different, perhaps better treatment than U.S. citizens because they happen to be illegal aliens. No jail if they have a family. No critical consequences if they have children. I'm here today to tell you differently. And, and let me make two points about the statements that the secretary has been putting out, Secretary Nielsen. Again, ACLU Deputy Director Lee Gellner. She's saying you don't want your child taken away. Go to a port of entry and present yourself and say you want asylum. People who were presented themselves at a border still had their child taken away. A new voice in this controversy has now emerged. Last week in Tucson, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, also known as the Clinics, brought together almost 400 immigration lawyers and advocates from all over the country for what is known by the nonprofit as a convening. The clinic has been around since 1988, working quietly on behalf of immigrants, but the organization is quiet no more. Clinic officials are stepping up and taking a very loud and aggressive stand, especially when it comes to the latest Trump administration policy involving the treatment of children at the border. I talked with Executive Director Jeannie Atkinson. You've been down to the border recently. What is the, what's the atmosphere like? What did you find? What did you hear? What did you feel down there? It is cruel and inhumane that we are purposefully 
tearing children up apart from their parents. Our our government is better than this. Uh, so so it's heart wrenching. It's it's wrong. It's not productive. It's not even serving the purpose that they want. So it's being needlessly cruel, I think. And you very much get a sense we're talking human beings. And so there is a stalemate. The Trump administration says they will continue the current policy of separating certain families at the border. Immigrant advocates say so much is now weighing on that class action lawsuit brought by the ACLU that if one would force the administration to stop the policy. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. Okay, everyone just take a deep breath. Last month, Tibetan Buddhist scholar and translator Robert Thurman spoke at the University of Arizona's School of Social and Behavioral Sciences about how to have more fun in the present moment. Thurman, a Columbia University professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies, is well known for his books and translations, including the Tibetan Book of the Dead. He talked with Laura Markowitz, an independent contributor to this show, about death, rebirth, and living in the now. People get so grim about Buddhism. What I really like to talk about is how to have more fun. And being enlightened is more fun. That's my main point. Robert Thurman has been thinking about enlightenment for a long time. At the age of 23, he lost the sight in one of his eyes during an accident. He headed to India looking for insight. And I've known the Dalai Lama since 1964, and he's a very close friend, and also a teacher, and also I admire him very much. In 1965, the Dalai Lama ordained Thurman as a Buddhist monk. Thurman was the first American to become a monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He learned the Tibetan and Sanskrit languages, and two years later he left the monkhood to marry a former fashion model. They had five children, one of whom is actress Uma Thurman. When I finished my PhD, my original teacher, the late Minorgas and his holiness Dalai Lama, ganged up on me, and they said, okay, you can teach in schools and do your thing, right, you're a professor, but don't just do that. You have to translate the whole canon into English. That's 4,000 books. And I said, oh, thanks a lot. And yeah, it's great. And then they said, oh, of course, you won't get it all done. You will, you will just get it started and create the institution, and then in a few generations it will be done. Then the Dalai Lama remembered that 30 years later, and when he met President of Colombia, he said, well, Lee, Lee Bollinger, that is, he said, well, Lee, you know, Professor Thurman needs at least three lifetimes to finish his project. <laughs> so then Bollinger, who's very, very wonderful, intelligent man, well-spoken, he says, oh, that's really inspiring. That's great, Your Holiness. But, you know, the problem is we don't have that system here in Colombia. <laughs> I was too shy to say, you, what do you mean I can't reincarnate in my professorship? What is the problem? That's a lot of tenure for one guy. <laughs> exactly. Buddhists believe we're all reborn infinite times. We're completely submerged in infinity. You can't say that infinity doesn't permeate our finitude because otherwise it wouldn't be infinite. <laughs> right? 
finitude and infinitude merge, actually, in a person. Buddhists believe that what follows us from lifetime to lifetime isn't a soul or a self. It's karma. That's the law of causation. If you do good, then you create future good, and if you do bad, you create future bad. In other words, what goes around comes around. According to Buddhists, you can be reborn infinitely into many forms, human, animal, insect, god, even space alien. Buddhists from ancient times didn't have a problem about life on other planets. Of course, there's billions, and, and they say we could die and be reborn in another human planet somewhere else, which might be more fun, you know, to have a tail and blue and live in a tree and in a, in a hammock. You know, it could be really fun. You know, there might be worlds like that. The circumstances of our current lives are reflections of the karma we created in past lives, according to Buddhists. Thurman says that's why opportunities to create good karma by doing acts of kindness are so important. They actually set you up to be reborn into favorable circumstances. That's an amazing idea. A beggar does you a much greater service than anyone you can hire if you give to the beggar because you, the only reason you give to a beggar is generosity. You have no other motive. The opening of your heart and your hand gives you a huge evolutionary fruition of great wealth and in a future life. And so that guy is doing you an enormous evolutionary service just by being there with his bowl. According to Thurman, the belief in multiple lifetimes changes our relationship to the present moment, the now. Uh, yes, the question of the power of now my dear friend Eckhart Tolle has done a lot of help to a lot of people about how it's very helpful to just sort of be more in the moment and not just be constantly ruminating about your things that your disappointments in your memory, your anticipations of the future and so on, and to be more alert and alive and aware of what's going on. And you might find more treasures in the moment than you know. And I think that's really wonderful. But the now for a person who is conditioned by our culture to think life is meaningless, there's no future life, you become nothing at death, which means that essentially right now you're nothing. If everything gets too bad, you just blow your brains out and you become nothing. And therefore it's all meaningless and purposeless. That subliminal framework that is inculcated in them by our scientific materialist culture the, the now is a little bit of a dead moment, so it's more of only a palliative. It's sort of getting away from your worries and your lamentations, and it does, it's not deep enough. So if you instead realize that what you find in the now is everything good, and that the now is the seed of your eternal future, the now includes everything beautiful that leads to a positive future. Thurman says the secret to having more fun and being happier is to become aware of the river of life and our infinite responsibility to help it flow in a more beautiful way for ourselves and for others. The now is the result of a wonderful effort by all generations past and yourself even, of course, in Buddhist point of view. So there's, then you suddenly are swimming in, the, in an ocean of an infinite currents of striving toward love and goodness and beauty and truth. And so your now becomes a moment of eternity rather than a dead zone of nothingness. And so th therefore I feel the real shift, which gets you away from the recklessness at the heart of materialist culture, which is the false bravery of thinking, 
you know, instead of restraining some negative thing or turning off the carbon pollution or doing something, saying, what the hell, and it doesn't matter because it's all nothing anyway, finally, which leads to our reckless culture that is wrecking the planet. To the absolute core, you have enlightened self-interest that everything go, even if it's just a little better, a little better. Then your, your, your power of now that is intensified by the power of a living, breathing eternity. His meditation practice helps him to be awake in the present moment. Thurman also has a death practice. I do try to do the practice of thinking about death all the time. Talk about power of now. The biggest now moment of all is the moment of death. I think everyone should be much more mindful of their death, not live in denial of death, and not be frightened of it, also not necessarily be gloomed out about it. His most popular book is a translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's like an ancient dummy's guide to dying and rebirth. What would be a good death for you? Well, a good death for me would be if I could have a little more time before that and become more stable at the deep unconscious level of my mind so that I would be sure not to react with terror no matter what happened and to be fully open to everything so confident that I could be, so that therefore I could be conscious in seeing where else I might like to go. You know, have a successful womb shot, go to a good mom in a good neighborhood in a family, and then there's lucid dying. You rise out of your ordinary body and you, and you can control the situation a little bit. You can surf it. You can't dominate it, but you can maneuver, negotiate. And then the ultimate is lucid waking. That's what Buddha does. He's like a lucid living. You know that would be really good. But uh, but I I haven't reached those things quite. But I have a sense where they are, and I feel inspired that I will get there. Maybe six lives. In this lifetime, Robert Thurman has a new book coming out this fall. It's about having more fun. He says if your pursuit of enlightenment is not making you happy you're not going about it the right way. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Ivan Bundy is a folk hero. He's the Nevada rancher who sparked a tense standoff against federal agents over grazing rights. Okay, these guys are not terrorists, okay? They have a grievance. I just spent 700 days in their damn jail. If you paid attention to the Bunkerville standoff in 2014 and then followed that story through the Oregon occupation two years later, you probably think you pretty much know the Bundy story. That is freelance journalist Leah Sotilli introducing an episode of Bundyville. It's a seven-part podcast funded by Long Reads, a website for investigative journalism, and Oregon Public Radio. It reveals that the story behind those recent standoffs with federal law enforcement began generations ago. I asked Leah Sotilli to explain what drives the Bundy family in their feud with the U.S. government. 
I freelance for all kinds of different outlets. Um, one of those is the Washington Post. So when the Bundy brothers took over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in 2016, they first asked me to go to the refuge, which I, I didn't do. It just turned out there was someone closer than, than I was. But they asked me to go to court when everyone was arrested and, and start covering the court proceedings. So that's when I started was when Ammon Bundy and his dad and his brother were all first uh, arraigned in federal court in Portland. So when we talk about the Bundy family, we're talking about Cliven, who's the patriarch, and at least two of his sons seem very active. Uh, you said Ammon and uh, Ryan. His most active sons are Ammon and Ryan, but there are several others that are involved. Are there any women in positions of influence in the Bundy family? I think that Carol Bundy has a lot of influence. Um, she definitely does a lot of interviews with Cliven now that he's out of jail. And she even does her own independent speaking engagements, kind of talking about their version of liberty and their definitions of the Constitution. So, yeah, Carol is probably the most prominent female in the family. The story initially begins with Cliven Bundy's reluctance to pay fines that the United States government says he has accrued from grazing his cattle. How big of a ranching operation did Cliven Bundy have when all this started, and has it grown or gotten smaller since? So he's always had the same amount of land, which is 160 acres outside of Bunkerville, Nevada. And that's a ranch that he inherited from his dad. Um, his dad purchased it from another man in the late 1940s. The ranch has always been 160 acres, but um, like any public lands rancher in the West or in America, you can get a grazing allotment um, and pay grazing fees to either the Bureau of Land Management or the U.S. Forest Service to be able to graze on public land. So for, for lots of years, Cliven's father did graze on public land, and he did it legally by paying for it. Cliven continued to graze on public land, but didn't pay for it. So his ranch remains 160 acres, but he claims that it's uh, much, much larger. And as the Bundyville series gets into, his refusal to pay those fines is really based on decades of family history. Sure. So Bundyville, I think in, in the minds of me and the other guys that I made the podcast with, was both a place, a literal place, and also a state of mind. So Bundyville was originally settled around 1916 by Cliven Bundy's great-grandfather, Abraham Bundy. Um, it's actually called Mount Trumbull, but a lot of people called it Bundyville because everyone who lived there had the last name Bundy. And that was a result of having kind of migrated around the West, trying to find a place to call home, you know, not being able to stay in certain places because of polygamy laws, um, because of persecution of Mormons in Utah. And then Abraham Bundy found a place that he could stay in northern Arizona. So Bundyville was short-lived. It, it only lasted for about 30 years before the place just really kind of went belly up because there was no water there. It was just a really horrible place to live. But what we make the argument for in the podcast is that Clive and Bundy is really just kind of trying to conjure what Abraham Bundy built, which was this Bundy utopia so far away from the government that that he could really make his own laws. And, and that's what we think that Cliven is really trying to do in southern Nevada, is start with the Bureau of Land Management and make a huge deal out of very cheap grazing fees um, to make a stand over the type of America he wants to see, which is a radical libertarian utopia. And those political actions, at their most dramatic, 
have led to two extended standoffs against federal law enforcement. The first being in 2014 on Bundy Ranch, where Cliven led, you know, he sort of started this whole thing by calling in militias from all over America to defend him in what he called his his rights um, to graze on the land. It was a whole standoff that is built on a foundation of um, a misinterpretation of the Constitution, but also on his deliberate lawbreaking for over two decades. And then the second standoff was really just uh, an extension of that first one when the Bundy brothers came up to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon and took it over uh, using a local ranching family's story really to kind of try and get across their own agenda. It seems like the Bundys really have become the core of what you could say is the most successful domestic terrorism operation in the 21st century. Yeah, I definitely think there would be people that would agree with that. I had sources tell me that the FBI had never seen a convergence of so many domestic terrorist groups in one place as they saw in 2014 in Bunkerville. So, you know, I think it's interesting because uh, the Bundys really push back on that definition of domestic terrorism. But when you when you really unpack it, it's almost difficult to not define it as that. Yeah, there's a great quote in the piece where you say that the Bundys offer a fight to people who really want to fight. But the question comes down to what are they fighting for and are they really fighting for the same ideology? Yeah, and that's, I mean, one of the key things with... Bundyville that we talk about is that you don't see this large movement of ranchers and farmers coming to the side of the Bundys, even in their own backyard in Arizona and Nevada. What this is, is a movement with an actual rancher in Cliven at at the center of it, but he's surrounded by people who just have a beef with the government, whether that's anti-government militias, whether that's white supremacists. Um, It's a whole bunch of different types of people who feel some sort of anger at the government that are rallying around him and and using his story to make themselves seem more justified. And as we head into the midterm election season right now, his son Ryan is running for governor of Nevada. What's the status of that race right now and what kind of press is uh, Ryan getting? He's running as an independent, which means he goes right on the ballot. And I have seen some headlines down there um, of Republicans being a little bit worried about him siphoning away votes because you will find quite a lot of supporters in Nevada for for the Bundys and for Ryan Bundy. One thing we talked about in the podcast was we spoke to a progressive political organization in Nevada called Battleborn Progress. And the director of that group did say People are very much taking Ryan Bundy's run for governor seriously because they feel like the world, the United States learned a lesson with Donald Trump that people didn't think that he was going to become president and he did. So we should definitely think about that and think about Ryan Bundy's run for governor in the same vein. My guest was Leah Sotilli, host and co-producer of Bundyville. You can listen to all seven episodes on the NPR website. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.